Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Everyone's seeming to have a race to the bottom in the face of the coronavirus threat, which raises a question. Is this going to support risk assets or does it signal a shift downward in the global economy that will ultimately be bearish for anything that relies on growth? And joining us here is Kara Kadana, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, as well as Damian Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Carl, I want to start with you. What do you think? The Bank of Canada is saying that the coronavirus represents a material negative shock to the Canadian and global outlooks. I would agree uh, completely with that type of assessment. So we're seeing a supply shock, and the, the, you know, then the question is, how big is the demand shock that accompanies it? And when you see canceled airfares and conferences being canceled, that's the tip of the iceberg of things uh, being restricted. And then, uh, you know, as we uh, get more... Uh, uh, tests uh, conducted here in the U.S. and actually get a better handle on what the case count is, uh, then you're going to see knock-on effects in uh, terms of uh, you know, potential schools being closed and that sort of thing. And uh, social distancing and quarantines will have a negative impact on the economy. So the Fed knows that its medicine uh, takes a while to kick in. Uh, and so it's jumping out there and acting now uh, so that hopefully some of the medicine will be flowing by the time uh, we start to see more severe impacts. Is the medicine enough, Damien, to... Uh to prompt people to go into emerging markets. Is that where they should go? No. So basically, I, what I would <laughs> no, say is in this. in a word, no. I mean, Carl makes a great point. What we're talking about, this is supply uh, disruption. But in emerging markets, we have to look at it in reverse. We have to say, what does supply disruption mean on demand for U.S. dollars? What's a payment disruption look like, right? And so, you know, think of Apple. Apple basically is now funding all of its key suppliers, most of which are based in Southeast Asia, trying to help them through the coronavirus and through this divide, yeah. Um, eventually, they're going to run out of ammunition to continue helping them. Then go, those, those suppliers are going to have to turn inward. They're going to have to turn to local banks and central banks. And then you start to see stress in funding markets. And that's because, simply put, they need dollars in order to pay their huge dollar debt loads that they're basically incurring right now. And my concern is that yesterday's Fed cut was not one designed to necessarily stimulate the U.S. economy it was more designed to uh, uh, respond to some of these bottlenecks and stresses that we're seeing in the global financial market, and that could manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And, and Jay Powell was very clear about that uh, during his press conference, that uh, you know they need to take preemptive action to uh, provide some buffers to the economy from financial stresses, uh, but also from economic stresses. And the very supply shock that Damien describes for EM also becomes a demand shock. If we look at the, the China uh, PMI numbers over the weekend and then some private numbers that were released after that, uh, it showed a, a worse stoppage in the Chinese economy than what we saw during the global financial crisis. And so for Chileans exporting copper and Australians exporting iron ore and coal, uh, that uh, shock becomes a real demand shock they have to contend with, which is why we saw uh, Australia cutting uh, rates earlier this week, uh, Canada today, and a couple other central banks uh, piling in as well. The, the one thing I'll just throw in here as a footnote, uh, the Fed has a vast network of 
business context, both financials and non-financials, right? So as they're assessing what's happening at key economic shock events like a blizzard or a hurricane or the current situation, they're talking to those business contacts and getting a better sense of what's happening on the ground. They're not waiting for it to show up in the economic data. And I think contacting those business uh, businesses uh, in their various districts uh, led them to a conclusion that this is a real shock that has to be contended with. I mean, what we have to remember here is that post-global financial crisis, Basel III was designed with the premise that it's really financial non-operating deposits that are slippery, that can come and go as they please. This is not that. This is a hit on operating deposits at banks, which if you look at your high quality liquid asset portfolios and your LCR ratios, I'm not going to go into the. What it means is that this is not something that Basel III was designed to prevent. So despite you have these swap lines in with central banks and all this other stuff, it's really going to weigh on bank reserves if this persists for that much longer. Okay, so let's take a step back because what we're really talking about is how much are we seeing financial market stress in addition to potential economic stress to come? And I think that that's been very unclear to people who are watching the market saying, look, this is a potential economic shock, but the banks are in good shape. Damien, are you saying that's not true? I'm saying that the banks are in good shape. I'm just saying that a lot of the buffers that have been put into place were not really ready to contend with something like this, a real supply disruption on the operating level. And so, you know, you just look at Governor Quarles' recent speech, you know, where he was talking about opening up the discount window. I mean, kind of prescient in the world we're living in right now. And then you take in conjunction with that, Carl, you know, just the fact that, you know, there is the market now. You see LIBOR OAS spreads, you know, you just see that the markets are starting to price in the promise of quant easing to come. Well, this raises a question uh, about the Fed's impact here. And people think of it as mostly able to stimulate through the financial system, through the banking system. What can the effect be on the real economy? How can we start to look for the medicine being felt in the real economy? Sure. Well, there's important psychological uh, impacts from this, right? So when we look at the uh, financial market shock, the wealth effect, uh, which Im- which is true for both households and corporates, of a 13% decline uh, in the S&P, right? We can compare this to uh, you know very recent history. In, uh, in Q4 of 2018, we had a 20% correction in the S&P, uh, and there was a, a very visible uh, negative consequence for consumer spending uh, in the following couple of quarters, uh, and the same thing for business investment trends, right? If you're a business and your stock is getting pummeled, uh, you're you're probably going to hesitate before you take some aggressive uh, investment measures and go out on a limb on new projects and whatnot. So the Fed stepping in to lower rates reduces your financing cost. Uh, Also, it helps to uh, stifle that risk off trade because it's a lot less appealing uh, to park money into, uh, you know, something... uh, uh, rating a return close to Fed funds now compared to two days ago. And we're going to be hearing uh, from St. Louis Fed President James Bullard coming up in just uh, about five minutes here with Kathleen Hayes of Bloomberg Television, who will uh, will be broadcasting that live. What are you hoping to hear from Jim Bullard, uh, Damien? Well, I would like to hear a little bit more about what was the reasoning. I mean, we didn't get much from Chair Powell yesterday. I mean, he was very tight-lipped. I'd like to see a little bit more um, color as to, you know, what was this? What was the real intention here? I think, you know, we heard moral hazard, those words ballied about yesterday time and time again. How You know, what does the Fed know that we don't know, right? And so I think a lot of those questions are, are very real. And like you said, the psychological impact of that can be devastating if the Fed is, intent, you know, given the Fed's uh, designed to keep, you know, uh, you know inflation level. And, and employment full. Carl? 
What are you well, hoping to hear? I, I, I'm looking to hear from uh, Jim Bullard how he would expect to uh, proceed from here. So we've seen a 50 basis point cut. Uh, I think that we're going to see more. So my team's looking for uh, two more 25 basis point cuts at the actual meetings, not uh, not emergency moves. Uh, but certainly, if uh, the the narrative starts to get away from uh, you know uh, reality or, or from uh, rational uh, expectations here, then the Fed would have to be uh, aggressive uh, once again. So just uh, kind of hearing what he thinks is the appropriate. Uh, response from policymakers more broadly, not just monetary policymakers. No one, including the Fed, has the illusion here that this is a problem that can be fixed by the Fed alone. So in answer to you, Lisa, sorry, just one last thing. Don't refinance your home loans just yet because rates are going lower. Damien Sassauer with a prediction. Uh, Damien Sassauer of Bloomberg Intelligence, Cara Kadana of Bloomberg Economics. Thank you both so much uh, for being with us. How significant is the disruption from coronavirus fears? This has been one of the big questions that people are trying to grapple with and price into markets as we game out a scenario in which there could be some sort of downturn, recession, not recession, temporary, V-shaped, U-shaped. Joining us here is Shelly Banjo, uh, Asia tech reporter for Bloomberg, had been living in Hong Kong. Right now, where are you living? We're camped out in our par- my parents' house in Dallas, Texas. Okay, so can you give us a sense before you decided to leave of what it was like in Hong Kong as the fear of coronavirus swirled in? Sure. So Hong Kong, I think, is a really interesting case because if you look at it right now, the cases are actually quite lower percentage-wise compared to China. Um, And so it seems like a lot of these draconian measures are working. And yet it's not does, it's not the greatest place to want to be right now. So a few weeks ago, we uh, Bloomberg shut down their offices as, as well as many other businesses. Uh, schools were closed um, and we have an 18 month old child. And so we decided, you know what, uh, it's very difficult to be in a tiny apartment with a young child when playgrounds and playrooms and things like that are closed. So we decided to um, go to Dallas and uh, stay with my parents for a little while. Okay, and can you give us a sense before that of uh, just sort of the fear factor of people staying inside? I mean, it sounds like uh, restaurants where they open was everything just sort of closed. Yeah, at the time, uh, there were a fair amount of grocery stores and um, and restaurants that were open, but it was right around then we started seeing people do runs on toilet paper. That was like a really big thing in Hong Kong. People started a rumor that there wasn't going to be enough toilet paper, and then everybody rushed. Um, you'd see lines outside of the pharmacies every single morning as soon as they opened up and got a new shipment in for hand sanitizer, uh, masks, and things like that. Okay, so looking forward... Can- can we get a sense of how quickly things have come back online and how much of a template this is for what we can expect potentially here if it continues to spread? Well, schools are still closed and a lot of businesses are still closed. Some of the businesses have kept open throughout this entire thing. Um, grocery stores are still being stocked. Um, you know, people can now get toilet paper again. So people are happy about that. <laughs> Life goals. No, but I, I mean, what about when it comes to uh, technology production? What, what, you know, that was one of the big questions with manufacturing and supply chains. So it's a completely different story in, in mainland China where most of the production is. 
the lot of the supply chains have started slowly opening up again, uh, slowing, uh, you know, slowly adding production workers, but they're nowhere near uh, at capacity or, um, you know, bringing their workers over. And um, they've reopened factories, but then they need to quarantine their workers for a few weeks to make sure that as they travel to wherever the factory is from their hometowns, uh, that uh, they haven't contracted the virus. Uh, So uh, factory production is still, you know, um, not, you know, normal. So there's been a lot of criticism around uh, the Chinese response to the coronavirus, lack of transparency, numbers changing. How does the response from the Trump administration compare? Well, I think that the Trump administration had a fair bit of more time to kind of decide what their response was going to be. Uh, So, you know, I think that it is something important to take to take seriously. You know, you get a lot of questions like, is this panic? Are people panicked? But you know what, this is a, a, a really important thing to take seriously. And so I don't think it's a panic at all. All right. And going forward, uh, just based on how quickly things are sort of getting back to normal within Hong Kong, does it give you optimism, a sense that things can come back online pretty quickly? Or does it give you a sense uh, of sort of a little bit of an ominous sense going forward? I think Hong Kong is still in a holding pattern. I don't think things are starting to come back online yet. And so until uh, uh, schools um, open, businesses won't open. And until businesses won't open, you know, everybody's kind of working from home and uh, productivity does slow. Um, And so I think the uncertainty has driven a lot of people out of Hong Kong altogether. And so it has a big expat population in Hong Kong. I think a lot of those people are gone and aren't going to come back. Um, some are you of those, going back? Um, we're planning on going back right now. Um, so we'll Do see Do you have any happens. sense when? Uh, I don't know yet when. And what about your expat friends? Uh, a lot of people I know left. And are not coming back um, and if are not they can. Coming back. Just because they think that this uncertainty is going to happen again? Yeah, and uh, Hong Kong has a special uh, circumstance of dealing with a protest for the last uh, six months before that. And so the economy has really, uh, is in a recession, and uh, it's hard to see mainland Chinese tourists coming back. It's hard to see, um, you know, tourism just generally coming back. And, uh, you know, people who are living there uh, you know, want to be there, and you know they. But if businesses close and shut down, then people are not going to have jobs, and they're not going to be able to go out and spend. And it's hard to see how Hong Kong's economy comes back in the short term. Well, Shelley Banjo, it is great to see you in person. Uh, however, uh, unfortunate under the circumstances. Uh, Shelley Banjo, Asia Tech reporter for Bloomberg News, normally based in Hong Kong, here in New York City, with us. Super Tuesday was quite a day for Joe Biden uh, with some decisive wins, particularly in South Carolina, becoming the candidate for Bernie Sanders to beat. Just crossing the the terminal, uh, Michael Bloomberg, majority owner and founder of Bloomberg LP, was dropping his presidential or suspending, I should say, his presidential uh, campaign and endorsing Joe Biden. And this comes after uh, Klobuchar and uh, Pete Buttigieg dropped out and also went behind Joe Biden. There also are reports uh, that Elizabeth Warren, senator, is reassessing her campaign. So it appears that the field is getting narrowed down to Bernie Sanders 
and Joe Biden. I want to bring in Rick Davis, partner at Stone Court Capital, a Bloomberg politics contributor, uh, and someone with incredible experience, both when it comes to politics and when it comes to Joe Biden. Uh, Rick, what I'm curious from your perspective, how important is it that there is a narrowing down of the field at this point? Oh, I think, uh, thank you, Lisa, for, first of all, for having me. And, uh, I think it's critically important. I mean, one of the lessons we've learned recently in 2016 is when various elements of the party, in this case the Republican Party, divide uh, their vote amongst multiple candidates, it allows, you know, what was at one point in time a fringe candidate, Donald Trump, to be able to win not only a group of primaries, but the actual nomination without ever going above 50%. And so, uh, I think the Democrats smartly uh, have allowed the winnowing process to occur. I mean, that's why we go to Iowa and New Hampshire. It's not for the weather this time of year. And uh, and you, you see the natural progression of events, and the egos have been put aside. And, uh, and you can tell the Democrats are united in one thing uh, primarily, and that is the defeat of Donald Trump. And that is what's motivating people like Mike Bloomberg to suspend his campaign, to rally the troops around Joe Biden on the part, as you mentioned, of Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. I mean, these are all things that had a major impact leading up to Super Tuesday and will after Super Tuesday. I think it's it's fair to say that this is now a very simple uh, campaign against two people, uh, um, um, Joe Biden, who represents the center and the establishment of the Democratic Party, and Bernie Sanders, who wants a revolution, and and voters are going to get to decide that. And believe me, that is a fair choice, right? I mean, yeah. they're, well, they're, they got plenty to choose from there. Well, Rick, uh, as a former Republican strategist, former manager of Senator John McCain's campaign for president, I'm wondering how worried you hear uh, Republicans being from here, how worried President Trump should be about the momentum that these two candidates are getting this early in the race, or not? Well, if I were Donald Trump and his campaign, I would be very worried about a couple things I saw last night on Super Tuesday. And one of them, principally, is the gravitational pull that Joe Biden has with white suburban voters, especially women. Um, we know that these are the same voters that helped Donald Trump win an election against Hillary Clinton. And, uh, and we know that they abandoned the Republican Party writ large. Uh, in 2018 in the midterms. You could chalk that up to parties in power had bad midterms. Um, but the fact that uh, they rallied around Biden's campaign in states like Texas and Minnesota and throughout the South and, and, and really on a national basis, um, propelling his uh, victory in states that he had really no business to be winning from, a, from just a tactical perspective, um, that ought to give uh, the Republicans and Donald Trump some pause that they're not doing a job of pulling those, those, those suburban women back into their fold, and they seem excited about Joe Biden. Just looking forward, Bernie Sanders still very much in the race, so it's Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. How concerned are you about a contested, uh, contested nomination or contested uh, convention? Yeah, yeah. convention. Yeah, less so now, right? I mean, one of the things that uh, you had to watch on Super Tuesday is whether or not uh, candidates like uh, Mike Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren could um, could accumulate enough delegates to want to be power players at a convention. In other words, you know, the group at large uh, would accumulate enough delegates to keep Bernie. At least, you know, that was conventionalism, right? How do you stop Bernie? 
um, um, uh, yesterday before Super Tuesday, and and they didn't, right? I mean, uh, they did not score enough uh, uh, victories or accumulate enough delegates uh, on Super Tuesday to be a factor, right, to where they could actually stop someone from getting the magic number, 1,991 delegates before the convention. And so it is much more likely in a two-person race that you now look like you have uh, that one of them is going to prevail. And, uh, and But I would say right now it's too soon to tell who that's going to be. Rick, just real quick here, I'm wondering uh, what type of candidate Joe is likely to pick for a vice president? Could it be uh, someone on the left, on a Sanders and Warren type side, or is he going to stick to his, his guns and sort of stay centrist? You know, I think a lot of that's going to determine what the state of the race is um, this summer, right? The Democrats have an early convention at the end of July. Uh, that's when they will be forced to have to make a decision on who the vice presidential running mate will be. And they will uh, look at what they need to score a victory, because uh, that'll be the number one thing is how do we actually win. And then they will want someone paired up with them. Uh, with Joe Biden, if he's a nominee, uh, to uh, help him govern. Uh, when Joe Biden was selected, uh, the running mate of Barack Obama, Barack Obama had a 15, 20-point lead over John McCain. Believe me, I remember I was running that campaign. <laughs> and and he had the luxury of knowing that it's highly likely that he was going to win. Yeah. And so he wanted to pick someone he got along with, you know, that was friendly, that yeah. would uh, complement his skill set. And, and Joe Biden was that guy. Joe Biden never added a single vote right. to the Obama campaign, but he was a great governing partner. Yeah, so that's uh, going to be, be interesting to see if that's the option that he has going forward. Rick Davis, unfortunately, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time. Rick Davis, partner at Stonecorn Capital, as well as former Republican strategist and former manager of Senator John McCain's presidential campaign. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.